So we're continuing in the, the Gospel Shape series, and again, to give you some context of what we're walking through, we believe that obviously the Gospel's true, and the Gospel is this, that all of human history is God's narrative, it's God's story unfolding for one primary purpose, and that is to reconnect everything, humanity and creation, back to Him through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if that reality is true, then that means the gospel touches every aspect of our lives. It redeems everything in our lives. It shapes everything about who we are. So because of that, this whole series is based on how we look at different topics and themes and how the gospel addresses that, how that shapes our lives. And so we've been walking through a number of different things. And so we're, we're, we're hitting on a lot of topics that could be difficult for people to navigate, but it's important because the scriptures have something to say about this as well as understanding. And so this morning, we're going to start into what will actually be a kind of a two-part within the Gospel Shape series. Part one is this week. Part two will be next week. And we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, sex, right? We talked about money a few weeks ago, and now we're going to hit sex, the two big topics that everybody cringes when they come to church and say, really, you're going to talk about that, Pastor John? Yeah, I'm going to talk about that because the gospel actually shapes our understanding of sexuality. And so this morning, I want to take some time to, to do that, and we'll, this part one will be kind of the foundational understanding of what is, what is a biblical or healthy sexual intimacy look like, as well as understanding the context for sex. And then next week, we'll talk about how the gospel actually shapes our understanding of sex and, and comparing that to how the, the culture wants to kind of change the narrative about sex. But before we go in the message, just kind of a, a, a warning, and that was this week and next week are definitely PG-13 uh, type messages. So if there's younger those in the room, if, if mom or dad, you feel like you haven't had the talk with them, uh, you may want to think about maybe having them go to a class or maybe this will be the springboard to have the talk. I don't know. You might hate me after this, this message is over. So, but, um, but I, this is so important that we have this conversation because I, I've, I grew up in the church and I've been in the church, you know, involved in ministry and attending in church for my whole life. And, and this is one of the areas that we re really struggle. We don't know how to have an honest transparent dialogue or conversation about sex. We get uncomfortable with it because what happens is that we have a tendency to go to extremes. And the one is we're so afraid we don't understand how to talk about this, especially from a biblical perspective. And so what we end up doing is we get shy about it and we get really prudish, which means we don't want to talk about it because it's embarrassing, it's uncomfortable. And so what we end up doing in the churches, and especially even sometimes in the context of our households, is we don't even talk about it. We don't talk about it, and when we don't talk about it, what we do is we end up leaving room for the cultural narrative to shape the way people view sex. And it and, and obviously sets us up for, for a terrible kind of understanding of what that means. The other extreme that we end up is, is that we, we, we feel somehow that uh, sex is bad, and so because of that, every time sex is brought up, it's brought up in this context of shame. That this is something that's bad, it's wrong, it's evil, it's impure. And that's a narrative that kind of dominates sometimes Christian households because we're so wanting our kids not to have sex before they get married that that becomes the primary narrative. The problem with that is that that shame has a difficulty disattaching itself from the reality of what sex is supposed to be once somebody gets married. And so because of that, we have to talk about this because the culture has dialogue about sex all the time. We see it every single moment of every single day. You see it through media. You see it through, obviously, music and television and everything. It's all there, and it's a certain narrative of what sexuality is supposed to look like. And so this morning, I want to start with kind of the, the, the basic understanding, excuse me, of part one, is this is the foundation that I like to build for understanding why sex and the reality of what that looks like in terms of a healthy understanding. So there's two things before we kind of roll through what we're going to look at this morning, is that... Uh, 
I want to kind of define two terms that I'll use this week and next week. And so when I'm using the terms, you understand what I'm referencing. They'll be up on the screen here so you can understand. The first one is this. When I use the term sexuality, what am I referring to? I'm referring to all things related to the act of sex, intimacy, gender, and identity. So this is, a, again, this is part one and part two. So that's a, a broad category. But then I'm going to use the, the term healthy sexual intimacy. That is the full range of sexual expression within the context of marriage and as the Bible defining marriage between a husband and a wife, a ma male and female. And so those are the terms that I'll be using so that there's some context for that. Um, and as well, I, I know from, from my own experience in counseling and even my own experience uh, upbringing, the, the dialogue that we're having this week and next week are important because there's something that happens when it, it's it related not only to sex, but anything that we don't know how to handle and we don't address becomes the forbidden fruit that tempts people. When you go back to the garden and you remember the story of Adam and Eve, obviously in that context, the enemy sold a lie to Eve that she believed, which was God's holding out on you. God's not giving you all that you're supposed to have. There's so much more if you will just eat this fruit because what, what did the serpent say to Eve? If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. And God doesn't want you to be like him, so he's holding out on you. And when it comes to the asexual arena, this is kind of sometimes the way we think about God, that somehow God is holding out on us. God is keeping us from what's really good, and, and if we just step outside the boundaries he's created, then we'd really be able to experience what this is all about. But here's the reality. God is the one who created this thing called sex, and he's created a context for it because he knows what he's doing, and he's created a context in such a way not to limit or somehow stifle but actually to fully experience what he created it for. And that's why sometimes the narrative gets flipped and we think that God is just this big prude who can't handle, handle a conversation about sex and is just trying to limit people in their pleasure and their fun in life, which is exactly the opposite. God's the one who created it, and if he's the one who's created it, he knows what, best, what context it's best for and how it's utilized. And so I want us to shift in our understanding because God is not afraid of sex. We are. God is the one who created it, and so that's why it's important for us to have this, this dialogue this morning. So the three things I want to start with, why sex, why God created sex, why this is important. The first one is this, it produces life. There's going to be some passages that will be up on the screen for you, you can follow along. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, right in what we call the, the creation narrative with God is creating everything, it says this in verse 28, it says, of Adam and Eve, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the he and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This phrase is so important because this is given to all humanity. When God says, be fruitful and mul multiply, the, the Hebrew word for fruitful is the word para, which is the word to flourish, which means to be all that you're created to be. There's a big element to that. And this is a beautiful thing that the God of, of the universe who created all things now gives in a small dose, a small capacity, human beings the ability to participate in his creation. That's crazy. And that's the context of sex, is that God has given this as a way to continue on what he started with Adam and Eve, which is such an important understanding of what it's for. But also I want to address something that, that a lot of times, that, that, that here's the reality, two things. What if I'm single and feel like I'm called to be single my whole life, and what if I can't have children? Does that mean that God doesn't want me to flourish? No, 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 that's not, that's not the case. There obviously is the cumulative impact of sin and brokenness in our world that contributes to things that it prevents people from getting pregnant. Also, there's singleness that is not a sin. It's actually, Paul actually talks that singleness is an advantage over marriage, especially when it comes to ministry. So what does that mean for people? That means that the, the concept of flourishing can come through things like adoption, 
Because there are children that although you may not give birth to them, they are as much your child as a biological child would be. And there's the flourishing of somebody who lives a single life that is more given to what flourishing in mission and ministry. Why? Because they don't have the burden, honestly, the burden, that's what Paul talks about, of being married and having a spouse and having children. But God has this whole idea that we're supposed to flourish, and that's why the context of sex is to bring to life this idea of flourishing, and that flourishing comes through a reproduction in our life that God embedded in each one of us. So that's the first priority of what sex is and why sex. Second thing, why sex? And this is where we're going to get really honest. It provides pleasure, and this is where we get all squirrely about this. Sex is designed for pleasure in intimacy between a husband and a wife, and that is not bad. It's good. In fact, there is an entire book of the Bible in the Old Testament that primarily focuses on sex. Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, depending on the title that your, your, your Bible will use. And that's written by Solomon. And, and some people have tried to explain it away about how it's just imagery. And it's just using this analogy. No, if you read it, which, by the way, everyone knows. Like, I remember when I was at youth camp and they referenced, like, I got to read that book, right? I didn't know that was in the Bible, right? But it is. Why? This whole book is talked about. Why? Because God has created something to experience pleasure. And it's not sinful. It's not wrong. And that's why so many times that we have this hang up about sex because we're not supposed to have pleasure. And we feel like the only way that we can experience that is outside the context of marriage. See, when, what happens is when we get this thing called shame, which we'll talk a lot about this morning, introduced to the equation, then we lose what sexual intimacy is supposed to be about. Because what shame does is shame causes us to pull back and be less than who we are. Shame tells you and me, don't tell people who you really are. Don't be fully uh, known by people, both in the context of marriage or any relationships. And so shame constantly keeps us living in the shadows. And what happens is when shame attaches itself to the sexual arena, it carries itself in a way that when you get to the place of, in the context of marriage, and this is true, and now my perspective may be different than yours because I've done a lot of counseling over the years, and I've seen so many couples who, if they were raised in a Christian household, sex has been this forbidden thing that you don't do. And so the, the conversation has been, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then you get married, okay, it's okay to do this. You're like, what? Wait a second. And so what happens is shame still kind of clouds it. I've, I've counseled couples, literally, that when they get married and you think, this is a great thing, you, you haven't been able to do this, but now you can do this. They can't because there's so much shame attached. There was one young lady in, in, in particular when I was counseling them in premarital counseling and then they got married, they came back for a follow-up and they said, we can't consummate the marriage. I'm like, uh, why not? <laughs> She said, because it, I know the Bible says it's okay, and I know that you say it, it's, it's okay, but I know it just feels wrong. I've been told this thing is wrong, and I can't do this because anybody that had pleasure in the sexual arena outside of marriage before this, they were sinful in my household, and now I feel like I'm that person. It took her three to four months to overcome that with a very patient and understanding husband. And she finally realized that, no, this is actually a good thing that God has given you. It's something God gave you that's supposed to be a part of your life. And that's part of the reason it's so important for her to understand that God's not afraid of pleasure. God created sex for pleasure. And that's okay. You and I should never feel bad about that. And then there's a third thing of why sex. And this is the one that's really kind of on the, on the larger scale. It actually reflects the nature of God. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is so important. God's creation is reflected in two genders. He didn't make one gender, and he made gender specific because both male and female, not individually but together, are this, at least in the context of marriage, are a reflection 
of the nature of God. So God created diversity to describe what his image looks like. And that's important because then if you read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the one statement that defines what marriage is supposed to be. And it's not just in the sexual arena, but it's in all of what marriage is. The concept of one flesh is so important because God has intentionally chosen certain words that he uses to describe the marriage relationship, and he also uses to describe himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it actually says, it says, where it actually says God is one. It's echad, which is the same Hebrew word used, one flesh. So God is saying my nature of being one, being what? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but being one in nature is reflected in husband and wife coming together in sexual intimacy in such a way that their oneness reflects the oneness of God. That's pretty powerful. That's why when it comes to the sexual arena, God has a lot to say about it because it isn't just an act that he gives for two people to experience. It's, a, it's almost as if God has said, here's a, here's a, a glimpse of a self-portrait of my nature embedded in humanity in the way that it connects to itself. And so this is important for us to understand because if the very act of sex reflects the nature of God, then there's a specific context that God gives for it. It isn't just any way, it's the way that God's created. It's the, when, the, when, the, when the, the painter describes how they're gonna paint and they paint it on a canvas, there's a certain way they're going to do it that's gonna be different than somebody else. It isn't just slapping paint on a canvas. It's done in a way with care and detail because it's specific. So understanding why sex, because it, it produces life, it provides pleasure, and ultimately it reflects the nature of God. That's why this is such an important conversation for us to have this morning. So with that kind of foundation of understanding why sex is such an important thing and such a big deal, I want to talk about this idea of healthy sexual intimacy. What does that look like? So before we get there, I want to just read from Genesis chapter 24, and then we read verse 25, because verse 25 has a key to understanding this for all of us. So Genesis 24 again, and then verse 25 as well. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then verse 25 says this. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Verse 25 is as important as verse 24. But, but I've known many people, when they read verse 25, they skip right over it. Why? Because it talks about being naked. And you don't talk about being naked in church, right? That's embarrassing. No, it's in the Bible. Adam and Eve were naked. Before the fall, before sin entered, Adam and Eve were naked 100% of the time. That's very significant because they had no shame. The reason they got clothing is because they felt like they had to hide something because of their own brokenness. And that is part of the equation that you and I have to understand is that God wants us to understand the reality of sexual intimacy that's healthy gives you and I the ability to be fully known and to fully know somebody without shame. They didn't have clothes because they had nothing to hide. Clothes came into the, into the equation. Why? Because they had to hide. They wanted to hide from each other. They wanted to hide from God. And because of that, shame enters into this whole thing, and it's not supposed to be there. But that's something we have to deal with and understand. And here's the beauty of the way God works. See, guilt is something that actually pushes us towards God. When we feel guilty, which means something's not right in my heart and my soul and my relationships, and it stirs something in us that eventually, hopefully, will lead us to what? To confession, to forgiveness, and then walking a life of repentance. That's how it's supposed to work. But this is what happens to us, is that we feel guilt, and maybe even when we go through the process of asking for forgiveness, we say it, but we don't believe it. We don't believe that God really forgives us. So this residue of shame just hovers over our life. 
and there's no, there's no reason for it. It's just there. Why? Because we still feel bad, and the enemy makes us feel bad, and culture makes us feel bad, and we make ourselves feel bad, even though God said, I forgive you. And this is where understanding God's grace and his love are so important, especially in this area. Because the Bible's pretty clear. It talks, this is how it defines God's love. One of the things it says in 1 Corinthians about agape love, which is God's love, it says it keeps no record of wrongs. And that when God forgives, God forgets. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, the, the term used to say no record of wrongs is it's a, uh, an accounting term used to keep a ledger of everything that happens. God doesn't do that. And so when we ask for forgiveness, God forgets. In fact, somebody came to me in between services and said, this is something that in the church we miss all the time. He said, when we go back to God with our shame, which he's already forgiven us for our guilt, but we have shame, it's like God looks at us and goes, what in the world are you talking about? I already forgave you for that. I don't remember it. Why are you still hanging on to it? It's that residue of shame. And that means if you have shame in your life, you don't know the love and grace of God. Because the love and grace of God says, I accept you not on the basis of your performance or how good you are, but because I choose to accept you. And that's the only answer that we have. And so in marriage, to be naked and feel no shame, which means there's no grounds for somebody to reject me. There's nothing for me to hide. Therefore, I can fully disclose who I am. That's what marriage is supposed to look like. So with that understanding, I want to touch on four things that help to kind of describe this healthy sexual intimacy that God has created for a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. First thing is this, it provides a context for full acceptance. So the reality of nakedness leaves nothing to hide so that a husband and wife are fully known by each other. There is no hiding, there is no secrets, there's only being fully known. So this is what's really important. One of the challenges that we have is that we feel afraid, especially nakedness causes fear for many people because that means I'm going to have to show a part of myself that I don't want to show to anybody because I'm ashamed of my body or I'm ashamed of what someone's going to do. And so I'm a f my fear of rejection keeps me from intimacy. And that's why in the original context, Adam and Eve had no clothes and had no shame, which is what doesn't mean that you walk around your house naked all day, okay? That's not what I'm saying. So husbands, don't go say that to your wives, okay? But it is this reality that I don't have anything to hide, so I can be fully accepted and fully accept somebody else. Why? Because I know there's no secrets. When you and I are not, do not fully disclose who we are to our spouse, we're less than who we are. We can never be fully ourselves. And this is the danger that we walk in. When we live in this, this reality that somehow we can't really be fully ourselves. Being married in, in a relationship, especially in the sexual arena, requires full disclosure of who you are. Adam and Eve couldn't hide anything. That's why they, they didn't feel any shame. When you and I enter into a relationship, especially in marriage, and we feel a sense of shame, it's because we're hiding something of who we are. Because we're afraid if we share it, somebody's going to reject us. But in healthy sexual intimacy, there is no rejection. There's only acceptance. Why? Because this is something we miss. Healthy sexual intimacy is never based on physical appearance. It's based on commitment, and it's based on unconditional acceptance. This is where, this, this is where the culture twists what God has created. Why do we know that's true? Because in the culture, what, it, what is a sex drive tied to? Somebody's physical appearance. That's what it is. It's a physical reality. And the reason why is because a sex driving culture is based on a selfish reality to pleasure myself at the expense of somebody else. Therefore, I use your physical appearance to somehow inspire me to want to be with you. And because of your physical attributes, that's what draws me to you. But all that is is a selfish reality saying I'm going to use you as a means to my end. 
That is not being fully accepted and being fully known. That's what it's supposed to be. And this is it's, it's really important because one of the things I know I've discovered, I heard somebody say it a long time ago, and it's really true, and this isn't somehow being nice to your spouse as you age, okay? But someone said this, and it's true. When you're in a healthy, sexually intimate relationship with your spouse, what ends up happening is your spouse becomes your definition of beauty. They become your definition of what, the, what, what someone is to be sexy. Because one of the things that always concerns me is with somebody, they always joke, I hear people, couples will say, oh yeah, you know, you're, you're really, you know, like to her husband, you're really amazing, but you're not Brad Pitt. Oh, wow. So you got like the door prize, right? You got the booby prize. You got like, yeah, I, I really was shooting for Brad Pitt, but yeah, you know what, you'll, you'll do for this lifetime. If that's your mentality, then what you've missed is you've missed that the definition of beauty is not based on cult, the culture's idea of beauty and what somebody is to look good, good physically. It's based on an intimate connection that over time what happens is your spouse does become the definition. They're supposed to. That's the way God has worked this. And sometimes we forget that reality. In fact, it's really true because one of the things that people used to say to me when I was younger, and I just, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I could not buy it. I thought, this, you guys are so, you're lying to me. Some people would say, oh man, sex gets better with age. I'm like, you're lying because you're old. You're just trying to put a positive spin on it. It can't be because I'm thinking over time your sex drive is going to drop and, you know, things are going to droop and all that kind of stuff. And so you're like, there's, there's not going to be. And you know what? I'm middle-aged now and I can say it's true. You know why? Because it's not based on a physical reality. It's based on a deep intimacy that you share with one person in the world and that goes way beyond any, any physical reality. That's the way God designed it. That's why the reality is in the old, and if you think about in the, in, the, in the Old Testament particularly, you remember how long people lived? You remember people were in their hundreds and they're having kids? You're like, how does that work? Well, <laughs> it worked like it does today. They just did it when they were a lot older. Why? Because there's a deep connection. There's a connection that's not based on the physical reality that people so many times base sex on. Second thing, healthy sexual intimacy also encourages relational transparency. So physical transparency and relational tra transparency are interconnected, that I'm actually allowing myself to be transparent. And this is so important because true intimacy is experienced at all levels when there are no secrets. There cannot be secrets in marriage, ever. And this is one of the things, again, I've seen in my, in my counseling is that I'll talk to people, and especially when I talk to guys, they'll say this. Well, I can tell you this, but I cannot tell my wife. That's a problem. That's a problem. And because you're not giving yourself fully. Now, I know because usually that is tied to a point of failure or brokenness in that person's life, they don't want to hurt their spouse. But they're actually hurting their spouse more by not disclosing because they're not fully being themselves and not allowing their spouse to fully trust them. Now, obviously, that can be difficult when there's full disclosure, but that's why when Kim and I got married, it started before we got married, and it hit fullness in the, in the first year of marriage. We had full disclosure about our lives, our past history, about everything, and, that, and I, we did that intentionally because we know that we can fully trust each other with our past. There is nothing that either one of us have walked through experience that's been done to us, anything that we've ever gone through that we haven't disclosed to each other. Therefore, I walk through this life with full Full trust that I will never hear anything. No one will ever come to me and say, do you know what Kim did? And I won't already know. And if, if they say something that I don't know, that means she didn't do it or it didn't happen to her because we've been fully honest with each other, that transparency. S true sexual intimacy is that way. 
that there's full disclosure, sexual history, and that's one of the things I work through with couples, is that before you get married, you better sit down and go through your first sexual history so that the person coming into marriage knows what you're walking into. Because then there's a, it's either like, okay, that's a deal breaker, or you know what, I can choose to trust you because you've been honest with me. The one thing that will violate trust more is when you're dishonest and you don't tell somebody and then they find out. So there's this transparency that's supposed to happen. We're supposed to give ourselves. That's part of, you know, part of the traditional wedding vows and even with rings is this statement, I give myself to you fully. Not 50%, not 80%, not 99%, 100%. I'm giving myself fully to you. Therefore, what? There are no secrets. You know the truth because I'm giving you the truth. So it encourages relational transparency. And then the, the third thing is it builds a bond of true unity. This is, this is more than just spiritual or biblical. This is biological. So sexual intercourse between strangers creates an awkward, unhealthy bond, while sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife creates a bond at the deepest levels of unity. See, this is, this is what the culture doesn't, doesn't quite understand. Every time you have sexual intercourse, be it with your spouse or if it was with somebody else, there is a biological reaction that occurs physically in you. The, now, it's more prominent in females, but it happens in males, too. There is a hormone that is released. It's called oxytocin. And it's, it's, it's released when there's moments of exhilaration or moments of pleasure or intense moments. It gets released. And it also has another function to it. It's a bonding agent. It literally causes attachment. And so when somebody continues to have multiple sexual partners and say it's just sex, it's never just sex. Because you've actually given a part of yourself away to that person and you have an awkward bond. And that's why, not, not all the time, but so many times I can tell when couples have had sex. Because if they're not together anymore, there's still an awkwardness or you can tell there's some kind of bond that they still hold with each other. Because there is, this, there is a physiological reality of what's going on. There's a bond that they've now experienced. And that's important to understand because if you take that and you put it in the right context, God has set that up in such a way so that when you have that with your spouse for the rest of your life, you have an, a, a bond with that person that you don't have with anybody else. That's the way it's supposed to be. It creates, it's kind of God infuses fidelity into the marriage relationship biologically. And that's why it's important to understand. Again, when I talk about this, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, there, I'm not, there's never an intention anything I'm saying to somehow place shame or, or, or condemnation on anyone who is, you've continued to have multiple sexual partners or you've had sex outside of marriage. But here, I'm, I'm, I'm setting this up. This is the context God's created. The beautiful thing is God redeems sex. He redeems our brokenness. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this. Why? Because the gospel shapes everything. It touches everything, all the broken areas of our life. And so this, this unity that's built is something that is true in our lives. It's, it's when you and I have a bond. Have you ever experienced that? We can take it outside the sexual arena. But there's bonds that are created when we go through intense moments of experience in our life with people. And it's, and it's also magnified inside the context of marriage with sex. But think about in your life, the bonds that you've created with people when you've gone through difficult times or when you've gone through moments of exhilaration, you've gone through things. Can you think of bonds that you have with people? There are things that happen all the time. In fact, there's a guy who I haven't, haven't seen face-to-face and I haven't talked to him in about 25 years. But every once in a while, he'll message me on Facebook and we, still have, we, we, have, we have a bond. And the bond that we have was because, I've shared this before, but on our way back from, we were on a mission trip to Brazil and on our way back, our plane suddenly lost altitude drastically. And it wasn't just a little blip. It was like literally like the bottom of the plane fell out and we all thought we were going to die. 
And so he and I were sitting around the same team. He grabbed my hand. He starts speaking in tongues and just like, I mean, it was crazy. He still thinks that I grabbed his hand. I didn't grab his hand. He grabbed my hand. And so, and it was like literally for about 20 seconds, the whole plane thought we are dead. We're going to die. And luckily the, the pilots recovered and we were all okay, but we were all freaked. Something happened in that moment. We had this like, like life altering, like near death experience. And so I have this bond with him. He's a pastor in Beverly Hills, and every once in a while we'll connect, but we haven't seen each other face to face. But as soon as we connect, what's the first thing we remember? I always go back and say, dude, you grabbed my hand. I did not grab your hand. That's what I go back to. And he has a little different memory. But there's those kinds of things. That's what God has created in the context of sex and marriage between a husband and a wife. You have something that, that nobody else gets to be a part of and nobody else gets to share. And then there's a fourth reality and that is this. Healthy sexual intimacy removes the cloak of shame. This is what God has put it in place. So shame keeps us separated, it keeps us hidden, but he healthy sexual intimacy removes shame, allowing husband and wife to live in at peace in right, uninhibited relationship. This is the way that God has created us. Why is this so important? Because shame is the enemy of intimacy. Shame kills our intimacy in life. It kills our intimacy in relationships. And so because of that, we have to deal with shame. And shame is only dealt with what when you know you're fully loved and fully accepted. That's when shame goes away. Because you know, I fully disclosed who I am and I have nothing to hide. Therefore, I am unconditionally accepted. That's why grace is such an important thing. We will talk about how the gospel shapes our understanding of grace. Because we don't understand grace. We have certain ideas of grace, but we don't understand grace. Which means that God doesn't does not accept me based on my activity today, yesterday, or next week. He chooses to accept me because Jesus paid for every moment of failure for my entire life when he died on the cross. Therefore, it's not up to me. It's up to God. And if that's true, then God knows all my junk and still loves me. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Somebody in this world knows all my stuff and they still choose to accept me, which means I have no secrets, which means I have no shame. Because shame will destroy intimacy faster than anything. Again, when shame attaches so a lot of times shame attaches. Now, it's not as much true for men, but it is true for women. That because we put such a premium in our culture on physical appearance, primarily female physical appearance, that what happens in our culture is shame gets attached to women because they don't feel like they add up. They don't feel like they're enough because you, you see this ultimate image of what a woman is supposed to be in our culture. And what happens is if you don't match up, then what shame and shame is, this is what shame does. See, guilt says what you did was wrong. Shame says you're wrong. Shame attaches itself. It becomes a part of your identity. And when you feel that as a woman or as a guy and you feel ashamed because you feel like you don't add up, it's part of who you are. And the only way you get over that is when not only God, but when you're in, in a marriage relationship, when your spouse unconditionally accepts you at whatever age you are, that's when shame leaves. And that's why it's important for both husband and wife to understand that we can either be the person who helps remove the cloak of shame or the person who continues to perpetuate it in somebody's life. See, because you can tell the difference the way somebody lives their life when they feel accepted. Because they don't have fear when they're accepted. They're not worried about if they're going to mess up because even if they fail, they know they're going to be accepted. So they, they live full on. And this is the other thing. What happens is when shame becomes a part of our lives, it isn't just in the sexual arena. It's in our relationships because fear or shame says, don't let people know who you really are. 
Because if they know who you really are, then they won't like you and they'll reject you. It's one of the reasons why people don't get in community groups is because they're afraid if somebody really knows me, they're going to know my stuff and then they're going to reject me. Which is the saddest thing. And that's why we work really hard, although we're very human, we work really hard at Antioch to be a place where you can disclose your stuff and people don't look at you funny. We should be able to be honest about our brokenness and let God work his redemptive purpose in us without people rejecting us based on our behavior. Why? Because God doesn't do that to us. The worst place for somebody to navigate their understanding of sexuality is in our culture today. The best place is in the church. It should be. Why? Because you draw back to what does the gospel say? What does the Bible say? What does God say about sexuality? Not what does the culture say? Because what the culture says is always based on this reality. I am the center of the universe and it exists for me. When the Bible says, no, 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 no. Sex is between two people and it is giving and the focus is not your pleasure. It is the pleasure and the fulfillment of your spouse. And when that becomes the goal, guess what? It's fulfilling for both parties involved because you're fully accepting, you're fully known. So I want to just highlight a couple things, and then I'm going to ask the worship team just in a moment to come, and we're going to sing one last song together. But you may be here, and you're thinking, okay, well, that's nice, Pastor John, but I'm single, and I've already had sex, so it's too late for me. Okay, I, I've blown it, and so now what do I do? No, 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 that, that, that needs to be clarified. The gospel touches everything, including our sexual brokenness. And that, is, that means that you could have had sex a thousand times with a thousand different people. And guess what God does? He still forgives. Over and over and over and over and over again. But here's what, what one of the things that happens when God forgives. Part of the process of forgiveness is an acknowledgement that I have taken the thing that God desired in a certain context. He gave guardrails for this thing called sex. And I've taken it outside and had done it my way, but, but forgiveness comes when you acknowledge, okay, God, I took what you intended, and I, and I took it out of why, how you intended it to be, and so it's lost its significance, but now I want it to be redeemed. Sex is redeemed what? In the context God created it to be. And that means it's, it's not only asking for forgiveness, which God forgives, but he says, God says, there's a new way to look at it. There's a new way to look at it. And here's one of the things that, that this is true for people, and I'll tell you, this is in a marriage context, so I do this with couples, and I've done this with a number, number of couples, that they'll come to me and they're living together or they're, they're, they're having sexual intimacy before marriage. And I say, okay, well, let's first of all, let's talk about the God, that God forgives you and God redeems that brokenness. But as a part of having a healthy hexual, uh, sexual intimacy that's going to be what you want in marriage, I'm going to ask you from now, as we go through premarital counseling, you need to abstain. And some couples are like, are you kidding, Pastor John? No, I'm not. I know what it is to have a sex drive. <laughs> But you need, to, you need to show respect for each, each other as saying, you know what? I love you more than sex. So I'm going to choose to refrain. I've watched couples who do that. Changes everything for them. I've also watched couples who reject that. And it, and it contributes to, again, it perpetuates the unhealthy sexuality that they have. And so, so what does that mean if I'm single and I, I've already done this? That means that God forgives you. And this is the beauty. When you ask for forgiveness, God forgives you. But then he leads you forward. And this is what I, I want us to see. And I'll talk about a couple of their categories because this is really important. When it comes to, one of the things that we, we tend not to see, if you read through the Gospels, you know one of the things you're going to find? Jesus encountered sexually promiscuous people all the time. Now, in the culture, it was primarily women because the guys were better at hiding it and the women were exposed by men. 
But how many times when you read through the Gospels, Jesus encountered sexually promiscuous women over and over and over again. And not one time, not one time did he pass judgment on them. No. In fact, not one time did he put shame on them. But what did he do? He forgave them. Every time. He accepted them. He embraced them. You remember the story of, the, of Jesus at, at the, the Pharisee's house and they're at dinner and a woman starts anointing his feet and she's crying and then she's wiping his feet with her hair and her tears and the religious leader gets indignant and says, man, if you knew who was touching you and Jesus knew exactly who was touching him. And that's the reason he was there. He wasn't there for the religious leader. He was there for the woman who had the promiscuous uh, identity in the culture and everybody knew who she was. And Jesus wasn't threatened by her touching him. Why? Because he knew what she needed was not rejection and judgment. She needed forgiveness. So he gave it to her. The woman that is exposed and literally caught in a trap is brought before Jesus, caught in the act of adultery, which, very interesting, the man is not present. They don't throw him at the feet of Jesus. They throw the woman at the foot of Jesus. And they all say, well, according to the law of Moses, she's committed adultery, so what she deserves deserves death. And then you know what Jesus says. Okay, all you perfect people, you get to throw the first stone. And then they start peeling off one by one. And the most powerful words are what Jesus says at the end. He says, he says where did they go? And she said, they're gone. He said, then neither do I condemn you. But then he says this. Why does Jesus not condemn her? So she can go right back and do the same thing she's doing? No. He says, now go leave your life of sin. What? Go now, have a, a healthy sexual understanding of sexuality in your life so that you can live free from this past sin that I've now forgiven you for. Which is beautiful. God sets us free to live the way we're supposed to live. So if I have experiences, God redeems that and God can remove the shame. Why? Because he forgives and he moves forward. Or maybe you're single and you haven't had sex, but you really do want to have sex, which is, by the way, extremely normal and healthy. Maybe you're engaged, maybe you're dating, and you're like, this is really a struggle, which is, it's human, it's normal. So what do you do? You set up boundaries. You set up limitations. You set up a context and say, you know what? Although it's hard, we're going to live this way until we get married. And I've seen, had couples and counseled them to do this over and over. Kim and I did this. Obviously, you have a drive, and the closer you are to marriage, the stronger that drive get, gets. You want to experience more intimacy, and so you have to police yourself. You're like, oh, that's really legalistic. I would rather be legalistic a few months before I get married and experience what I have on the other side of marriage than just something like, ah, I don't want to be legalistic about this. Yes, in this area, legalism is good. Which is, what do I mean by legalism? I mean this. Set up boundaries that you know that you're not going to violate or that someone's going to hold you accountable to. So for example, it might be never be in a house by yourself. Never be in a car late at night by yourself. By the way, these are what Kim and I did. Certain times after a certain time of night, don't be together. I don't know what works for you, but there's certain triggers that, you know, like, you know, if we're there, it's just one easy step over the line. I don't want to go there. That's a good thing. You know what it does? And this is one of the things I really want couples to understand. You are showing the ultimate respect for your future spouse because you're making the statement, I can choose to refrain right now because I respect you enough and love you enough to wait till the other side of mar marriage when I have the commitment that goes with the intimacy. That's what it's about. But God can do that. So maybe you're married and you're thinking, man, Pastor John's talking about something. I don't even think I know what's true, if that's, if that's even possible. That kind of intimacy, that kind of being known and being fully known and giving myself away, I don't know that. And it might be because you've been living out this reality. You live in secrets with your spouse. 
And I'm saying that not necessarily that there's some deep-seated sexual sin in your life, but, but you haven't been fully known yet, and you don't fully know your spouse. So you haven't experienced the depth of intimacy that God created you to experience with your spouse because you're still holding back, because you're afraid if they fully knew you, they would reject you. And that means you have to have the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to live with full disclosure. I'm going to be willing to explain. I don't care if you've been married for 30, 40, 50 years. There's a level of intimacy that maybe you haven't experienced yet because there's something in your past that you still hold as a secret from your spouse because you're afraid they would reject you. See, God has meant this to be an intimate level where there's one flesh, there is nakedness with no shame. Why? Because I fully give myself. 100% from both sides. So I want to close with this. Ask the worship team. They'll come and they'll, they'll join me and we're going we're gonna to go into song and give some instruction. But I really want to focus in on shame because shame is the thing that will keep you stuck where you're at forever. You'll never get free. You'll never be who God created you to be. You'll, you'll always struggle because shame's going to tell you the lie. Keep hiding. Keep it in the shadows. Don't let anybody know. See, the only way you find freedom from shame is you have to risk rejection. You have to risk. But with God, there is no risk. He's already taken care of it. He's chosen to accept you. His choice, not yours. And if this is the case, that this is the way that God works, and then he's the one that created sex, he's the one that created marriage, he's the one that created intimacy, he desires that for his people to be able to be intimate to a level where there is no rejection, there is no shame. There's full acceptance. God wants that for each one of us. Now, if you're not married, God desires that for you right now because you may be feeling you've carried a sexual violation from your past, you've carried sexual promiscuity from your past, you've been involved with that, and it still holds this cloud over you. You've tried to explain it away, you've tried to push it away, and it keeps coming back, and it keeps haunting you and haunting you and haunting you, and it's because you're not walking in the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. He says you're forgiven. The Bible says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful, faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from everything that is not right. So my, my ability to be forgiven is not based on me. It's based on God. So what do we have to do? We have to tell God. We have to confess. What's confessing? Confessing is speaking the truth about what's going on in my life. That's what confession is. And confession gets it out there. It's the first part of breaking the cycle of shame in our life. Because I don't have any more secrets when I get it out there. And I'm going to pray in just a moment because I'm really convinced that God wants to remove shame from our lives. He died on the cross to for forgive our guilt. And when our guilt is forgiven, we should have no shame. But the enemy keeps it over us like a cloud. He holds it over us. That's why the Bible says what? For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. No longer condemned. Why? Because Jesus stood condemned for us all. So I don't have to live that way. So I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes. Now, I want to be sensitive because I, I know that even in this moment, shame can play a role in, in what God wants to do. But I, I know that God wants to bring freedom today. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything that would cause you embarrassment or further shame. But I know one thing that was this very powerful is there something about stepping out of the shadows of our shame and brokenness that brings freedom? Now that may mean in these next few moments that you, you need to take a posture that would allow you to be honest before the Lord, and that's up to you. 
but maybe it might be later at a time where you know that there needs to be not only confession before the Lord, but you know you need to tell somebody else so that you can have a sense of accountability and also, well, a, a sense of being known. And maybe it's a, your spouse or maybe it's a friend. But one of the beautiful things that we don't pick up in that story in, in Luke where Jesus is at that banquet with the religious leader and the woman begins to anoint his feet. See, what's going on is that most likely they're gathered in the courtyard. There's a table set at the middle and it's only for the guests. But out of charity, the religious leaders allow those who are poor in the community to come and line the outskirts of the courtyard and stand there during the banquet. But at the end of the banquet, when all the scraps are left on the table and the, the, the privileged guests are dismissed, then those who are poor were allowed to step out of the shadows and come to the table and get what was left over. So when this woman stepped out of the shadows to engage Jesus, she was doing the very thing that God calls us to do. She was stepping out of her shame. She was stepping out of what had been keeping her hidden because everybody knew the kind of woman she was. And so when she stepped out of the shadow for herself, she was saying, I'm coming towards Jesus and I don't care what people think of me anymore because I'm done living a life that's full of shame. So however that looks like for you today, how do you need to step out of the shadows to engage Jesus so that he can bring his acceptance and his forgiveness and his love and his grace and his mercy to bear on your life? So however that is, and for starters, it's confession. And as we, we sing a song in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to just confess, to tell the Lord the things that you've done so his forgiveness can begin to work in your life. But I'm gonna pray in a moment, and then when we go into this song, it's a song called Clean. And what I'd like you to do, just in your seats, this, the team's gonna go through the whole song one time, and I just want you to listen and pray and let the Lord work in your heart and bring his forgiveness to you. And then at one point, Tim will ask us to stand and we can all sing it together. But one of the things this song talks about is breaking free from shame, and I believe that that's what God wants to do in our lives today. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are the creator of all things, that it means that you included, you created sex, and you created it to be a good thing in our life, and you created it to be a small self-portrait of your nature. And so Lord, I pray that today, as we have learned from the scriptures and from the background about what it means to understand a sexual, a healthy sexual intimacy in our lives, that you would redeem the parts of brokenness in us, the way that we think about sex, the way that we've lived out our, the, actu the idea of sexuality, and that, Lord, you would begin to capture back what you intended this thing, this beautiful thing to be in our lives. And the result would be we would be forgiven, we would be free to do exactly what the woman who was caught in adultery did. She went, she left her life of sin, and she became the person that you created her to be. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that in us today as you bring your forgiveness in our lives.